When the bomb dropped, I wasn't even on the table yet. I heard the plane, and then there was this tremendous bang. I ducked. All the windows came in, and the ceiling, and a couple of walls came in. There was this incredible smoke everywhere. And I was shaking like a leaf, even though I wasn't hurt. So wrote one survivor of the 1940 London Blitz. The Brits were fully expecting uh, Germany to invade. In fact, Hitler was fully expecting the Germans to invade England. He had called it Operation Sea Lion, and um, he was bent on destroying Great Britain. Except two things stood in his way. Air superiority, the Royal Air Force, was not knocked out, and naval superiority. And so in September of 1940, Hitler decided, well, we'll postpone Operation Sea Lion, and he turned his eyes eastward to invade Russia. We modern-day Americans, uh, we don't have a clue what aerial bombardments and imminent invasions look like. And praise God, praise God we don't. But history would indicate that we are more the exception than the rule. Throughout the history of mankind, it would seem that people are more living in the fear of being conquered and being invaded than being the conquerors and the invaders. So it was in the 8th century B.C. in the land of the Middle East. I invite you to take your Bibles to that passage we just looked at, Isaiah chapter 7, the desperate situation that Judah and Jerusalem and their king Ahaz found themselves in. In our study of Isaiah, we should know by now that it was the Assyrians that were the dominating world power of the day, and everyone feared the Assyrians. So much so that some of the smaller states around the Middle East region were uh, coming together, forming strange alliances so that maybe they could ward off the Assyrian hordes that were breathing down their neck. And that was the case with Israel, whose king was Pekah, and Aram, or Syria, whose king was Reason. And they formed an alliance together. And then they reached out to the south to Ahaz, the king of Judah, whose capital was Jerusalem. It was as if Ahaz saw the handwriting on the wall, and he decided not to throw his lot in with Israel and Syria, but he did an end run around them and to curry favor of the Assyrians themselves, he sought an alliance with them. If I can get on their side, maybe things would go well for me. Well, as a result, Israel and Syria turned against Judah in what historians call the Syro-Ephraimite War, 735 to 732 B.C. And they came after Judah in the south with a vengeance. We won't go into all the details of what happened, but according to verse 2 of 
Isaiah chapter 7, Ahaz and the hearts of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake with the wind. And there again we have that poetic ability of our writer Isaiah. They were shaking like trees in a forest in a strong wind. He was shaking in his boots, and rightly so, because verse 6 of chapter 7 says that these kings, Pekah and Reason, said, let us go up against Judah and terrorize it and make for ourselves a breach in its walls, and let's set up the son of Tavael as king in the midst in it. By the way, again, this is just one of these little things. It doesn't impact the, the meaning of the text at all, but if you look at your translations, Tavael is T-A-B. B is, sounds like a V in Hebrew. T-A-B-E-E-L, Tavael, and it's translated as God is good. He was going to, the son of Taviel was going to be a puppet ruler that they were going to put on the throne. Um, in the Hebrew text, Isaiah probably wrote Tavaal, the last E becomes an A. And now the name means good for nothing. That's just how Isaiah played with the words. We miss that a little bit in our translation, good for nothing. But Pekah and Reason make a very, very um, dangerous miscalculation. To put Tavael on the throne would be to remove the lineage of David from the throne in Jerusalem, the rightful lineage of David, which would run total contrary to the promise that God made in what was called the Davidic Covenant. Turn with me to um, that passage, 1 Chronicles uh, chapter 17, just back a little bit, 1 Chronicles chapter 17. There's also recorded in 2 Samuel, but in 1 Chronicles chapter 17, starting the last part of verse 10, it says, and I will subdue all your enemies. This is God talking to David. Moreover, I tell you that the Lord will build a house for you, and it shall come about when your days are fulfilled that you must go to be with your fathers, that I will set up one of your descendants after you, who shall be your sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build for me a house, and I will establish his throne forever. Verse 13 says, I will be his father, he shall be my son, and I shall not take away my loving kindness from him as I took it away from he who was before you. But I will settle him in my house and in my kingdom forever. And the last part of verse 14 says, and his throne shall be established forever. This is the Davidic lineage, the Davidic um, line. And, and basically what God is promising in this Davidic covenant is that there will always be a little David boy on the throne. He's promising them a perpetual lineage forever there will be a David boy. That's a really, really strong, amazing promise that God puts out there. So Pekah, oh, and by the way, recent archaeological discoveries have found that he was actually nicknamed 
boo. No, that's not true, but I just, I sensed a glassing over of eyes for a moment. And, uh, but Pika and Reason makes this miscalculation that they can actually put someone other than a Davidic king on that throne in Jerusalem. God says in verse 7, thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand, nor shall it come to pass. Why? Because God is true to his word. He's true to his word. Now, to bolster Ahaz, to encourage Judah, God brings his prophet Isaiah. And he comes to Isaiah, and it says uh, back in verse 3, then the Lord said to Isaiah, go out now to meet Ahaz, you and your son, Shereshuv, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field. Now there's a specific direction. Um, put a star or something at that verse or circle it because in a couple of months, depending on how quickly we go through some of these chapters in Isaiah, that direction and that marker is going to be repeated by God. It'll have significance. And I want you to remember that when Isaiah met Ahaz, God told him to go to the end of the conduit at the upper pool on the way to the fuller's field. Just make a mental note of that. And so Isaiah comes and he gives Ahaz this divine promise from God. Verse 10, and the Lord said and spoke again to Ahaz, and he said, ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Make it deep as shield, as high as heaven. But Ahaz said, in verse 12, I will not ask. I will not test the Lord. And then he said, now listen, O house of David, is it too slight a thing for you to try the patience of men, that you will try the patience of my God as well? And therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. That's a famous verse, right? That's a Christmas verse that we hear. Now, to understand the, what God is promising here, we have to understand a little bit of, of the people that he is directing this uh, promise toward. We have to understand to whom it was spoken. Verse 10, it says God, as he speaks through Isaiah, speaks to Ahaz. Clearly, he's addressing Ahaz. And he says in verse 11, ask a sign for yourself. That's a singular. That's in the singular. He's talking to Ahaz, yourself. But then in verse 13, he switches the audience. And it says, now listen, O house of David. Is it too slight a thing for you? And now he uses a plural you. We don't catch that in our, in our English language. I can say, um, you are here this morning. And I'm talking, you know, now if you're in the, in the South, we could say y'all are here. But in our English language, we, there's no plural for you. Or I could be saying, you, Mike Thomas, are here today. And now that's a singular. But um, other languages, like Hebrew, could tell you if it was singular or plural. And so he addresses part of 
this promise, this divine promise to Ahaz, and he uses a singular. And then he addresses part of it to the plural, the house of David, the lineage, the whole, the whole line of David, the house of David, the people of God. And he says, the sign is a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and you will call his name God with us, Emmanuel. Now, that is after God comes to Ahaz and says, ask for yourself a sign. Make it as deep as Sheol, as, as high as heaven. God is giving Ahaz an opportunity to express his faith. Ask a sign. You're shaking like a leaf. I understand that. The Arameans and the Ephraimites are on your borders. They're, they're going to breach the walls of Jerusalem. They're going to take you and put their puppet ruler, Taviel, on the throne. I understand you're worried. You're frightening. Just ask a sign. I mean, make it whatever you want it, as deep as Sheol, as high as heaven. I mean, the sky's the limit. Whatever you want, ask it. Um, may the grass turn purple. I, whatever you want, make, it, make a sign. And, and Ahaz, in his self-righteousness, oh, I, I would never test the Lord. Well, because we know that Ahaz had his own plan. He's going to go to the Assyrians. He doesn't need God. And so God says, all right, I'll give you a sign. And here's the sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child. The word for virgin here is a word that is typically, when it's used in the Old Testament, is used of a young, unmarried, childbearing age young maiden. A virgin. And he's saying a virgin in her state of virginity will be with child. And that child will be named God with us. Now, folks, that's a sign. A virgin with child, and it's God with us. I think this is exactly how we need to interpret this passage. Some will interpret it that there was probably some young woman there, and, and for Ahaz, he's saying this young woman will, will eventually have a child, and his name will be God with us, which really isn't much of a sign because there were a lot of young women in the Jerusalem area and having babies, and that's not much of a sign. But this is a sign. The virgin will be with child. And it's God with us. It's God with us. By the way, in most of our translations, except in the one I'm using, unfortunately, New American Standard does not uh, put an article in front of the word virgin. In your text, if you have an NIV, I think, in the King James, it says the virgin will be with child. Mine says a virgin. But there's really an article there. In other words, Isaiah, as he's writing this, is referring to a particular young maid, young woman. Now, there's nothing in the context that would let us know 
who this is. In fact, it was just kind of left as maybe Ahaz was, even Isaiah as he's speaking this by, uh, under the uh, uh, direct influence of God the Holy Spirit as he's communicating this. Who, who was this one? There's nothing in the context that tells us. The virgin, like, well, who, who's that? Will be with child. It'll be bearing a son named Emmanuel, that God is with us. Well, we don't know, except for the fact that if you were a good Jewish person in those days, you knew for centuries that Moses had written in the very first book of the Torah, the book of Genesis. In chapter 3 of that book, after sin had entered the world and he's now bringing about the curses on the serpent and then to the woman he says, your seed, O woman, the seed of the woman will become the head crusher, will crush the head of the serpent. And then Moses writes on. But for centuries, Jewish people understood there's something unique about the seed of the woman, and it doesn't say the seed of the man. Typically, in Jewish writings, you would have the, the uh, genealogies written by the son of, and there would be the male-dominated names. But in this very first prophecy, Genesis chapter 3, it's the seed of the woman. That was unique. That was different to say it that way. And now Isaiah comes and says, the virgin will bear a son, a he is coming, God with us. And I think it draws our attention back to God's original promise. Now, if we were just reading this and hearing it like Ahaz would have, we would never have looked ahead 700 years to a Christmas story. That would not be known to us. And yet we could ask a question, well, okay, we know 700 years later a virgin gave birth to a child who was God with us. That's the Christmas story. But for Ahaz, what good is a sign that's going to be fulfilled 700 years from now? But there's also one for Ahaz. If we keep reading in chapter 7, it says that, he will eat curds and honey at the time he knows enough to refuse evil and choose good. For before the boy will know enough to refuse evil and choose good, the land whose two kings you dread, now he's talking singular again to Ahaz, not the house of David. The land whose two kings you dread will be forsaken. Before the boy will know, well, it seems like, wouldn't that be the son called Emmanuel? No, it's not. No, it's not. Is there a boy? <laughs> is there a boy that's being addressed that that's there when this is being told? Well, let's go back to verse 3. The Lord said to Isaiah, go now and meet Ahaz. You and your son, Shirajashuv, take him with you. Why would God ask Isaiah to take his little, little son with him? Let's go 
Shir-Jashuv, let's go make a, uh, a pronouncement to the king, Ahaz. Well, now we know why he brought Shir-Jashuv. Because Shir-Jashuv is standing there holding maybe his daddy's hand. Isaiah says, For before the boy will know enough to refuse evil and choose good, the land whose two kings you dread will be forsaken. The boy here is Isaiah's son, and he's saying this little boy, before he reaches an age of, of moral, um, um, an age of moral understanding, just in a very short time, in a few years, Pika and reason will be off the world stage. And that's exactly what happened. And so in this passage, there are two signs being given. There's a sign given to the house of David that we know would be fulfilled 700 years later. And there was a sign given to Ahaz with a little boy holding his daddy's hand. And before that boy could reach the age of, spirit, of moral maturity, Pika and reason would be destroyed. God's true to his word, which is scary when you read the final paragraph, the coming destruction, verse 17. The Lord will bring on you, on your people, and on your father's house such days as have never come since the day that Ephraim separated from Judah, the king of Assyria. It's written that way in the Hebrew text for, I think, a, a, for effect. There will be nothing, you will never see anything like this before. The days are going to be wretched. The king of Assyria. And it will come about, verse 18, in that day that the Lord will whistle as he did in chapter 5. For the fly that is in the remotest part of the rivers of Egypt and for the bee that is in the land of Assyria and the the images, the swarm of flies will come from the south in Egypt and the swarm of bees will come from the north, from Assyria. And they will come, verse 19, and settle on the steep ravines, on the ledges and the cliffs, on the thorn bushes and all the watering places. And in that day, the Lord will shave with a razor, hired from regions beyond the Euphrates, that is, the king of Assyria, shave the head and the hair of the legs, and it will also remove the beard. In other words, shame will come. Verse 21, and it will come about in that day that a man may keep alive a heifer and a pair of sheep, and it will happen that because of the abundance of milk produced, that's not blessing, that is an actually an indication of a curse. Because of the abundance of the milk produced, he'll eat curds for everyone that is left within the land will eat curds and honey. In other words, there'll be far more animals than there will be people, because the people are going to be destroyed. There'll be so many animals, you can't eat and drink all the milk and eat all the curds and honey. Verse 23, it'll come about in that day that every place where there used to be a thousand vines, valued at a thousand shekels of silver, it'll become briars and thorns. And people will come there with bows and arrows because all the land will be briars and thorns. As for the hills which used to be cultivated with the hoe, you will not go there for fear of briars and thorns. That's a curse. That's a curse. It goes back to Genesis chapter 3 again. And they will become a place for pasturing oxen and for sheep. 
to trample. It speaks of events that will happen in the land of Judah. And when we get to chapters 36, 37, 38, we'll find out when this was fulfilled. Now, there are three things that astound me about this passage that we read. Probably more than three, but I want to share with you three things that, that astound me that are really, I think, in one way, shocking. The first one is God's abundant grace and mercy. Make no mistake, Ahaz was an evil, wicked, godless, undeserving of God's grace king. Just over real quickly, turn with me to 2 Chronicles chapter 28. We get a description of Ahaz. 2 Chronicles 28, verse 1, Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king. He reigned 16 years in Jerusalem, and he did not do right in the sight of the Lord as David his father had done. But he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel, and he made molten images of the Baals. He walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. That was the kings to the north, the northern tribes. There were 18, I think 18 or 19 kings that ruled Israel in the north, not one of them. Not one of them walked with God. And Ahaz followed after them. He made molten images for the Baals. Verse 3, he burned incense in the valley of Ben-Hinnom. And he burned his sons in the fire. He practiced child sacrifice to these gods, Moloch, and, and these, these pagan deities according to the abomination of the nations whom the Lord had driven out before the sons of Israel. Verse 4, he sacrificed and burned incense on the high places and the hills and under every tree. This guy was a wicked, wicked man. And yet, God was willing to spare him. Ask a sign. Ahaz, you don't deserve this. But I'm going to show you how gracious I am. Ask a sign for yourself. Make it as deep as Sheol, as high as heaven. I don't care what it is. A gracious, merciful God offering this to a wretched, no good king like Ahaz. Why would God extend mercy to Ahaz? Why would he extend grace to someone who doesn't deserve it? Why does he extend it to me? To you? Because there's no one in this room or no one who's ever lived in this world who doesn't fit into the camp of Ahaz, an undeserved sinner. And yet the Bible teaches us over and over and over again that God is a God of grace and mercy. It's part of his character, it's part of his nature to extend that to undeserving sinners. This is the good news, it's called the gospel. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. Jesus came, died on the cross as a, 
as a substitute, as a sacrificial payment for our sins because God required it. He demanded it. He doesn't just extend grace and mercy in a cavalier sort of way without cost, but the cost wasn't our cost. It was the cost of his son, his, his life, and Jesus gave himself for us, and he died in, in our place, and the Father raised him from the dead. And he extends to anyone who will receive him the free gift of eternal life. The question is not so much why would God extend grace and mercy to Ahaz? Why would he extend it to any of us? Because he's a God of grace and mercy. There's a second thing that astounds me in this passage. And it's a theme that we see over and over. I've already referred to it, I think, in past messages. But it's just God's sovereign plan. It's his intimate involvement in time and history. It's how he engages people, nations, and in real time, in real historical settings. A little bit more, that sovereign plan is revealed in this passage this morning. A virgin is going to get pregnant, is going to bear a son who will be God with us. Now, as we go through Isaiah, we're going to find out, in fact, chapter 7 through 12 are specifically known as the book of Emmanuel because over the next few chapters, Isaiah is going to unpack a little bit more about this Emmanuel. We remember Isaiah chapter 2, verse 2, where it was written, Now it will come about in that day, in the last days, that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of mountains. And many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways. And he will judge between the nations. God is coming, coming to this earth. Emmanuel, God with us, a son is going to be born. And one day he will establish this mountain of God. And people of the nations will come. And they will say, teach us your ways. Judge between us. God has a plan. We, do we think this world is going to continue as it is? Are you kidding me? Or what Peter said, I like, in 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter wrote as to this coming salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries. Can you almost see Isaiah? He pronounces this prophecy of a virgin going to be with child, and uh, it'll be God with us. And it was like, did, <clears throat> did, did I just say that? And he goes back into the, the law and the books of, of Moses. He makes careful searching and inquiry. Wait a minute, Genesis 3. The seed of a woman is going to come and be the head crusher. And he goes and he studies Deuteronomy. And Moses says, a prophet like me is going to be raised up. And he keeps searching. And then, then Micah probably read Isaiah's work and said, what did Isaiah mean by that? Peter is saying they made careful inquiry and searches into these prophetic utterances, seeking, verse 11, to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them 
that they were not serving themselves but you in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. And Peter is saying, you think the prophets were excited and wondering about this. The whole angelic realm is peering down and wondering, what is going on? Jehovah God, Almighty God, our Creator, has got something up his sleeve, and he's fulfilling it. And it all has to do with that central point, that central focus of history, when God became a man and paid the sacrifice for our sins. But it doesn't end there, as Isaiah will tell us. God has a plan, and he's fulfilling that plan. I like how the New Living Translation words, Ephesians chapter 1, God has now revealed to us his mysterious will regarding Christ, which is to fulfill his own good plan. And this is the plan. At the right time, he will bring everything together under the authority of Christ, everything in heaven and on earth. And furthermore, because we're united with Christ, we have received an inheritance from God, for he chose us in advance, and he makes everything work out according to his plan. We sit here today, and as we see this world unfold daily, almost, almost moment by moment in this day and age of news 24-7, and we need to be, as the people of God, assured and confident and filled with hope that God is moving the pieces in his sovereign plan, raising up and taking down and moving all things to its consummated end. He has a plan to bring all things under subjection of his son, Emmanuel, on this earth and reign supreme. And it's happening right now, this plan being unfolded. Does that offer and give you any comfort at all? The stuff that happened this week to you? The things that unfolded, like our little four-year-old granddaughter going to the hospital for a couple of days because of her upper respiratory thing or the issues that are happening in your life or, or the financial concerns? As the old song says it, he's got the whole world in his hands. He's got you and me in his hands. Which leads me to the third thing that astounds me. You see, God does not conform his plan to ours. He's conforming us to his plans. But we just have to trust him. Why people don't trust him more astounds me. Let me personalize it. Why, why I get myself tied up in knots sometimes and worrying, I just don't understand it. When you read a passage like this and understand what God is about, maybe saying it negatively, be careful who you put your trust in. 
Ahaz was going to look to the Assyrians. And yet, according to verse 17, it was the Assyrians who was going to destroy him. As he looks to the Assyrians, and before they come and destroy him, God, Almighty God, is offering him grace and mercy. And he passed it by. It was God who told Ahaz, take care, be calm, have no fear, and do not be faint-hearted. And by the way, he tells every one of us the same thing. He also says to Ahaz in verse 9, if you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. By the way, it's a play on Hebrew words to stand firm. It's the same word that is used. If you do not stand in your faith, you will not stand at all. One commentator put it this way, God is attracted to weakness, to need, to honesty. He's repelled by our self-assured pride. Do you say by your actions, by our words, I've got this covered, God. Thanks for your promise, but I'll trust the Assyrians. <laughs> I'll trust my own plan. I'll trust my government. I'll trust whatever. And God is saying, lean on me and you'll stand strong. God is saying, treat me as irrelevant and you will become irrelevant. Why don't we trust him more? And I, and I have to share this. I, I wasn't going to, but in, in verse 8, Verse 8 says, for the head of Aram of Damascus is Damascus. The head of Damascus is reason. And now within another 65 years, Ephraim will be, that's the nation of Israel to the north, Ephraim will be shattered. Another 65 years. Now, if you know your Bible, I mentioned this, these words were spoken in around 735, 734 B.C., it was 12 years later in 722 B.C. that the Assyrians finally put an end to Israel and took them off into captivity, about 12 years later. Say, so, wait a minute, Isaiah, what are you doing? Just patting the ears so, you know, you'll be dead by then, so you don't have to be accountable to your words. 65 years, this will happen. Where did that come from? And so oftentimes, and I'm guilty of this too, we read that and we just kind of, pass it by. But as I delved into this this week, it, it just maybe seems so insignificant, but I want to share it with you because it, it astounded me. Um, Tiglath-Pileser III was the one who began this movement of Syria down, and he died. And Sargon II, his son, took over, and he was the one who destroyed Israel and took him off into captivity in 722 B.C. And he died, and his son Sennacherib came on the scene, a Syrian power. He was the one who, we'll see in chapters 36, 37, and 38, uh, gathered around Jerusalem and brought fear into Hezekiah, the king of Judah. And then Sennacherib dies, and he has a son, Esarhaddon. In, in, um, back in Ezra, and, and what... Well, back in Ezra, chapter 4, verse 2, this is what we read. Verse 1, now when the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the people of the exile were building a temple to the Lord their God of Israel, 
So this comes after the Babylonian captivity. The Jewish people are being brought back into the land. The 50,000 under Zerubbabel were coming back. Ezra, the priest, and they're going to build the temple. But the enemies see this. Who are these enemies? They approached Zerubbabel, verse 2, and the heads of the fathers of the households, and they said, let us build with you, for we, like you, seek your God, and we have been sacrificing to him since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, brought us here. All right, now track with me. Track with me. When the Assyrians would conquer a country, eventually part of their tactic was to remove the nobility, remove the learned people, take them away from their country, from, from, from their land, and then eventually bring in other conquered peoples into that land to populate it, to mingle with the remaining people there. That's exactly what happened. We just read in, our, in, in Ezra, there's this group of people, they are known as Samaritans. They were leftovers of Jewish people of Israel, a remnant that had been left there. And under Esarhaddon, he brought in other peoples to populate there. That was the final nail in the coffin for Israel. There was still a remnant left there, but when Esarhaddon brought in these other people to intermingle, and it was finally shattered. Now, here's what excited me. From the time Isaiah wrote this passage, this verse 8, and saying 65 years, and people are saying, 65 years, where did that come from? From that moment to the time Esarhaddon, and he came, I think, in 689 to, to 661, to the time Esarhaddon brought people into that land to intermingle, to put the final nail in the coffin of Ephraim, guess how many years it was? 65 years. And we can't trust God with the daily things of our life? in something so little, so seemingly insignificant. We pass over it when we preach and when we study 65 years, and yet that little, little phrase in verse 8 tells me God knows exactly what he's doing. And when he says it's going to happen, it's going to happen. We can trust him completely, implicitly with the things of our life because that's who he is. He's our great God, our great Savior. And he indeed holds this world in his hands. He loves us with an everlasting love, and he's fulfilling the plans for our life and the grand plans encompassing this whole universe. He's God. Let's trust him. Let's pray. Our Father, Thank you for the opportunity to wrestle with your word, seeing you in history move and, and shape the grand events and yet interacting with us, loving us, and making promises that you fulfill perfectly. And so, Father, my prayer is that we will increasingly be people of faith, May a, 
May a word like this at Isaiah 7 today increase our faith, give us hope and give us confidence, not in the things of this world which are growing strangely dim. But as we look to you, may our confidence in you enlarge. And because you're a God of grace and mercy, that should astound us, Father. And you're a God with a sovereign plan on being unfolded in this very moment of time, consummating in a wonderful time yet to come. It astounds me, Father. And Father, it astounds me how little I trust you. Increase my faith, I pray in Christ's name. Amen.